Hebrews 2.5 to Hebrews 2.12, the eighth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews, was presented by Jack Crabtree on November 23, 2014, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 3, Translation, Installment 1, Update B, accompanies this talk. I need to apologize for the circumstances that we're in that I'm getting you translations and dribs and drabbles and changing my mind as I go and completely confusing you about what to be looking at. And I'm really sorry, that's not intentional. The nature of interpretation is it's a kind of a dialectic. You understand, you get yourself oriented to what the argument is and what the topic is and what the concerns of the author are. And it's in the light of that that you understand the details of the text. So you go back and forth between the details and the larger argument and the details, the larger argument, and until you zero in. And I'm not done with that process. So as I go getting ready to teach any given week, I'm looking at the details in a new and fresh kind of way. And sometimes it alters my thinking about exactly how to translate it. So please bear with me. I'm going to try to get ahead so that that doesn't happen too much. But If I change my mind, I change my mind, and I'm really sorry about that. My recommendation would be that if you want to take notes, take them on a page not on the translation, but another page separate from that, so that when I come along later with the real deal, maybe they'll match. Okay, we're in the second subsection of the very first part of the letter, starting with paragraph 5. This would be on the page 2 of the translation you've gotten from me. 2-5 in your Bible, in your normal English translation, would be chapter 2, verse 5 is where we start. We've talked about some of this, so some of this will be review combined with going a little deeper into the argument of the text. Now, he did not put in subjection to Angeloi the realm to come, concerning which we are speaking, but someplace a certain man has testified, saying, what is man that you remember him, even the son of man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the Angeloi. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Indeed, you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who is made a little lower than the Angeloi, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the death that he suffered to the end that by the grace of God he might taste death in the place of every person. Now it was appropriate for him on account of whom are all things and in the interest of whom are all things, it was appropriate for the one bringing many sons to glory to qualify the forerunner of their deliverance through his sufferings. For then both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one humanity. For this reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. And as a response, I will put my trust in him. 
even further, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And that's enough for now. It's a big enough chunk for now. So I want to look at that now, that section, and look at issue by issue as we make our way through the section. Now, he did not put in subjection to angeloi the realm to come. A lot of our English translations have the world to come, which is fine, but it's not the standard word for world. It's the word that was often used to describe the Roman Empire at that time. It's basically the civilized world, the peopled world, the world that matters to human society. But what we're talking about is that realm, that kingdom that is to come. But he just simply uses the word for the civilized world that is to come, the peopled world, inhabited world that is to come. But I think quite clearly he has in mind the eternal kingdom of God. He didn't put that in subjection to angeloi, usually translated angels. But as I have been arguing here, it's not really angels he has in view. It's what we would call theophanies, ways in which God appears in some kind of visible form. The burning bush on Mount Sinai, the man who had dinner with Abraham, who we find out was actually Yahweh himself making himself visible. And the background to that, as we have been discussing, is in all likelihood, some of Paul's readers of this letter have formed the belief that when the Son of God comes, the Son of God is going to be a theophany, not a human being. He's going to be a theophany. may have the appearance of a human being. He may look like a son of David. He may look like one of us but he's actually just going to be God visibly appearing as such. He's not actually going to be an actual, real, particular human being. And the fact that Jesus was a real, actual, particular human being was a problem to them. He can't be the Son of God then. He can't be the Messiah. The Messiah would not be so ordinary and humble as to actually be a human being. So Paul here takes this opportunity. It wasn't to angeloi that Psalm 8 was about whom Psalm 8 was being written. It was to a man. So he did not put in subjection to Angeloi the realm to come because Psalm 8 then, as he goes on to quote it, what is that talking about? That's talking about the rule, the authority that the Son would have over all of God's creation. And if you remember, I argued that Psalm 8 is probably a meditation by David himself over the promise that God had made to David. I will be a father to to you and your seed. You will be a son to me. And that promise, David understood what he was saying. He understood the implications of that. You mean I am going to literally embody your Yahweh's kingly rule over the whole domain of your realm, that would like make me king over all of nature. That would make me king over all of creation. He understood that. That is what was being promised to him. And he understood that that's what was being promised to him. And so he goes, whoa, who am I that you would remember me? Who am I that you would be mindful of me to make that majestic and grand a promise to me? I'm just a human being. What's with that? And that's what the psalm is all about. So he introduces the psalm by saying, notice it's to a human being that God is promising authority over all of created nature in that psalm. Not to any angelos, it's a human being. 
He says in the second sentence there, but someplace a certain man has testified saying, I used to take great comfort in that because it sounded like what he was saying is, I, I don't know where, but isn't there someplace in the Bible, someplace where it says something like this? <laughs> That's how I always quote the Bible. And so I took great comfort that even an apostle does that. There's a problem with that. Everything hinges on him knowing exactly who's speaking when he cites this psalm. He knows it's David. It's got to be David. The whole argument hinges on it being David, a human being. David talking about himself. So I think someplace a certain man has testified is using that in a different way. We do the same thing. There was a certain man from Nazareth. Well, you and I know exactly who I'm talking about, right? It's a kind of an oblique way of, by being a little bit coy, perhaps, by being a little bit coy, you are drawing emphasis to the individual who we're talking about. I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's drawing our attention to note who it is that he's talking about. By quoting a very familiar psalm, I would expect, by quoting a very familiar psalm, everybody knows who the author is, and by saying, now there was a certain man who said, well, because I know exactly who he's talking about, it draws my attention to who it is that he's talking about. And therein, he can build his argument on that. Now, there was a certain man who wrote Psalm 8, where he said, and that was all about subjecting the world to come. Who was it that wrote that, and who was he talking about? Oh, himself. This is the son, this is David, speaking about the promise made to him. So I need to stop being so vague in my references on apostolic authority and and, uh, not use this as an excuse any longer. Okay. Then he quotes the psalm. Then in paragraph 6, this will be to the second part of chapter 2, verse 8 in your normal Bible. Now in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So it was the whole created order that Psalm 8 is talking about. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made a little lower than the angeloi, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the death that he suffered to the end that by the grace of God he might taste death in the place of every person. Okay, we talked about this a little bit last week. The little lower than the angeloi part, remember back in Psalm 8, the little lower than the angeloi was not a demotion. It was not a humiliation. It was an exaltation. To, and in fact, as I pointed out last week, the Hebrew text says a little lower than Elohim in Hebrew, God, a little lower than God. The point that he's making is, God, you have made me so important. The only one more important than me is you. You've made me just barely less in significance than you yourself. That's the promised exaltation that you've promised me. Go back to the psalm again. You have made him a little lower than the angeloi. You have crowned him with glory and honor. It's astonishing the way we read that. You have made him a little lower than the angeloi. We're thinking you have made him a little lower than the angeloi. You have temporarily demoted him and humiliated him. It's not what the psalm says. You have crowned him with glory and honor by making him a little lower than the angeloi. You follow? So, but he says, that's the promise is that you have made him so exalted that he is almost as important as God himself. He's next in line, next, second most important to God himself. 
subjecting all of creation to him and to his authority. However, we don't yet see that, do we? We don't see this now he's, when he says that, he has in mind Jesus. Because he's arguing all along here that Jesus is the one that is going to fulfill, that is going to realize the promise that's being made in Psalm 8. That's Jesus. Well, we don't see all things in the created order subject to Jesus, not yet. There's a whole lot of evil in the world. There's a whole lot of ungodliness. There's a whole lot of hostility to God. And Jesus has not stopped it. He hasn't smashed it. He hasn't destroyed it. He hasn't eliminated it from God's creation. So there's a lot more to be done before the promise of Psalm 8 becomes a reality in the life and existence of Jesus. We don't see that yet. But although we don't see all things subjected to him, we do see him, it says, crowned with glory and honor because of the death that he suffered. Now, what does he have in mind there? What Paul has in mind is, when we saw him ascend from the Mount of Olives, after his, I mean, he was raised from the dead, he appeared to us, talked to us, taught us for a period of time, and then he stood on the Mount of Olives and said goodbye to us as he ascended into the clouds, into the sky, never to come back to be among us again for any extended period of time. He's not with us any longer. So where is he? And all the apostles are in agreement. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wherever that is and whatever that means, he's not here. He has been exalted. And the perspective seems to be that what that rising into the clouds is symbolic of is his being rewarded, and it really is a reward. We'll, t- we'll talk more about that in a second. He's being rewarded with the authority and the standing and the status that God had created him for and had destined him for. That's, that has now been granted to him. Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, is qualified to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords in a way he wasn't in Bethlehem at his birth. Right? That's a little bit different. I don't think we're accustomed to thinking of it in those terms. We think, here's a little human shell that has God in him. Everything that's true about him has always been true about him. He came into the world as God. He left as God. And as God, he's always been qualified to reign over his creation and so on and so forth. That's more likely the way we're inclined to think. But that's not how the apostles look at it. Jesus, we'll see several examples in this argument right here. Their perspective is, we need to recognize God though he was, Jesus was a human being. And because Jesus was a human being, he had to experience human existence the way all the rest of us experience human existence. What do human beings hold in common? They're given an ordeal, a test that they must pass, an ordeal that they must endure. Jesus had his. His was incredible. It was being willing to voluntarily be tortured by the Romans for the sins of mankind, literally tortured by them. And the Father, God, is asking of Jesus, Jesus, will you do this for your brothers, for mankind? Will you go and allow this to be done to you for mankind? And his reluctant but nonetheless real poignant yes, I will do that, was his act of obedience to 
to endure the ordeal that had been given him, to run the race that had been given him to run. And as he will much later in Hebrews argue, there's a reward at the end of a race. If you finish the race, you get the reward that is due the people who complete the race. Jesus has finished his race. We're still in ours. Jesus has finished his race and endured to the end. And as such, unlike us, upon his death, he entered into his reward. You and I might die and not yet enter into our reward. It's coming, but we may not get it right away. Jesus is, as he calls him here, the trailblazer, the one who, how did I translate it? Forerunner. Jesus is the forerunner of our deliverance. Why does he call him the forerunner of our deliverance? Because he's the one who's already got there. He's already gone on ahead. He's the trailblazer who has whacked down the bushes in the way and has already arrived so that we can come after him, that we can follow after him into our deliverance. Okay, so by having put on immortality already, by having already entered into his eternal existence already, he's been crowned with glory and honor. His is not just immortality, he's been granted immortality and a throne, and that throne now belongs to him. It's his. Now, he hasn't got permission from the Father, okay, go and destroy the enemies of God. That day will come. That is going to happen. Evil will be punished. Evil will be destroyed, and it will be destroyed by Jesus. But not yet. But not because he's not qualified. There's only one thing that stands in the way of Jesus subjecting all of creation to his own rule, the rule of God. And that's the permission of God. In every other respect, he's already qualified himself for that role. That's, I think, what he's talking about here. So we don't see all things subjected to him yet, not now, but we do see him in a position to do exactly that because he's been crowned with the glory and the honor that goes with the authority to do that and the qualifications to do that. Okay? Crowned with glory and honor because of the death that he suffered. So why was he crowned with glory and honor? Precisely because he passed his test. He endured the ordeal that was given to him. He ran the race that the Father put before him. And as such, he's being rewarded and has been qualified to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings over all of created reality. Notice how Paul puts it in Philippians. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him above The other thing I do when I quote is say, you know, (laughs) you know what he said. I have no idea what he said, but you know what he said. (laughs) Therefore, but the, the point I'm making is the therefore is connected with the obedience. He obeyed and therefore God highly exalted him. That was the reward for the obedience that he had done. St. Paul saying the same thing here. He was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the death that he suffered. It was his being obedient to the point of that death on the cross that had been assigned to him. It was because of that that he was crowned with glory and honor and exalted. They're intimately connected with each other. And was it simply a reward for dying? Was it simply a reward for being killed? Was it simply a reward for being tortured? No, it's because 
he voluntarily allowed himself to be unjustly tortured, unjustly tortured. He didn't deserve it because we deserve it, that by the grace of God, he might taste death in the place of every person. The death that he's dying is dying in my place. I should have been there. I'm the one that should have been held in contempt and mocked by the soldiers. I'm the one that should have been crucified. I'm the one that should have been scourged. I deserve it if I make an objective moral judgment about my own being and my own condition. And I get over my visceral reaction to torture as such. But if I'm just objective about my own moral condition, he didn't deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. And that's what both God and Jesus are saying is, yes, exactly. (laughs) It's exactly right. Jesus didn't deserve to be there. You deserve to be there, Jack. That's good. Now you're thinking straight for a change. That was the purpose of the cross, is that he might taste death in place of each and every one of us in our stead. And his willingness to do that, to suffer that death that had that meaning and that significant and played that role and played that purpose in God's scheme of things, it was his willingness to go through with that that was rewarded with being exalted, with being crowned with glory and honor. Okay, probably a good place to pause for any questions or comments you have at this point. Question about the chronology in verses 5 through 8. Now you're saying that you have made him for a while a little lower than the angels. Did I say that? Yeah. I did? Well, someone said somewhere. <laughs> right, your English translation has that. Mine doesn't, but I, the other, the traditional translation is so ringing in my head that I might very well have said that. Yeah. Well, I think it has, uh, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. But you said... Uh, a little lower. You have made him for a while a little lower than the angels. Mm, I, mine reads, you have made him a little lower than the angeloi. That's what I meant to say. A little lower than the angeloi, which in the, the Hebrew text of that verse says Elohim. Yeah, right? okay. exactly. Yeah. And then you said, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have put him over the works of your hands. So David is looking at this as the exaltation of David. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But then you said, with Jesus... All that comes after his resurrection. Yes. Yeah. Okay, right. so... Hmm. Well, okay, with Jesus it comes after his resurrection. Let me... Qual- because let me. With, with David it sounds like all things are put under subjection under his feet because he's the king of Israel, and wow. Okay. Incredible, but with okay, Jesus... Okay, but what, could, what could Paul say about David? Yeah. Well, we do not yet see all things subject to David. Mm-hmm. He could also say one other thing about David. It's not like all things are, David is qualified to rule over all things right now, right? None of those things are true. He's just a placeholder. Mm-hmm. This promise has been made to David and to his seed, but the actual coming to fruition of that promise, we don't ever see it in the life of David, nor David's son, nor David's grandson, nor David's great-grandson, until we finally get to Jesus. Jesus is the one who's going to see the fruition of that promise come about, and when will he see that? Well, not ultimately until, I mean, we, we still don't ultimately see this psalm and the promise of this psalm true of Jesus yet. But notice, I mean, this gets a little bit confusing, but notice at his baptism at roughly 30 years old, a voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. Well, how can, some people might ask, how can he say that to him if what you're saying, Jack, is correct? He's not qualified to be the son until after his obedience to the point of death, death on a cross. How can he say, you're my beloved son, if he hasn't qualified for that status yet? Well, go back even further. What are the angels saying? This is the son. Everything in his birth was pointing to the fact, this is the son. Well, it's clearer to see at Christmas time than it is at John's baptism. What are we talking about? We're talking about his destiny here. These angels are singing the glory of his coming into the world because they, in the light of his destiny, to be the Son of God. That's what the voice out of heaven was talking about. This person, it probably was a combination of present reality and the future. This is my beloved son in the sense of the last 30 years have been pretty good. I really am pleased with this being that I've brought into existence. But is he really fully qualified to function as the son in the sense that the covenant was saying yet? No, not really, but he's going to. I mean, God, who knows the beginning from the end, the Alpha and the Omega, God knows what he's talking about. Yes, I'm speaking prospectively. I'm looking into the future and describing what he will be one day, not what he in actuality is right now. But it's just as true prospectively as it's ever going to be. This is my son. This particular individual, not someone else. It's this individual who has the destiny of ruling over the God's creation as the Son of God. So we mustn't get confused by the difference between when God is speaking into the future about the destiny that he is predestined for people versus, and then read into that 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 has to be an actuality right now or he couldn't make that claim. I don't think that's true. The problem is it's the time stamp on each of these events and each of these declarations. Mm-hmm. It can get a little confusing. When he, and when he says, for in subjecting all things to him, he could be talking about David. And then he, in verse 9 where he says, in 10 it says, um, I'm so lost now. In verse 9 it says, but we do see him who was made for a while a little lower than the angels, Jesus. Now, now he's, he's, he's okay, pumped Okay, again, the while's not there. Okay. Are, are, are you looking at my translation or a Bible? No, I'm looking at NASB. Yeah. 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 They literally have inserted from their theology a word that's not in the Greek text. While. It doesn't say a little while. It just says a little lower. And they have interpreted that to mean a little while lower. I'm arguing it's status. It's a little lower in status than the angeloi. And so now he identifies the person who was foreshadowed by David in, in his, his sort of his exaltation to the throne of Israel. Mm-hmm. But now he's saying Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Now, does that glory and honor include everything being subjected to him? Yes and no. Okay, and that's... Yeah, it that's, includes that in the sense that he is now qualified to have all things put in subjection to him. Does it include them actually being in subjection to him yet? Not yet. Okay, so when Jesus arose and he told his disciples, all power and authority has been given me, what does that encompass? It means he's now qualified. He's now qualified. He has run his race. He's finished his race. And he has now entered into his reward. I am now the qualified king 
over all of creation in a way that he wasn't before his crucifixion, I would argue. And you're going to get a lot of arguments about that because these things come up constantly in the debate about what is happening now on earth. Yeah. Is, is the right. devil running wild with free will and okay. attacking whom he may, or is he on a leash? Because actually, it's all in subjection to Jesus anyway. Okay. Right? Okay, that's a great point. Notice, I mean, that in the theological position that says, you think Jesus is not ruling, he's ruling in heaven. He is fully in authority right now. Why does Paul say this then? If Paul believed that, why would he say, we don't see all things in subjection to him right now? He doesn't have that theology. Paul has the theology that when all things actually are in subjection to Jesus, it'll look like it. You'll be able to see it. It'll be a reality that is empirically evident to you. Otherwise, he couldn't possibly write the sentence. If I weren't experienced in how we in this community go about doing study, basically the way I used to be when I first came here, mm-hmm. um, I would interpret your remarks as a lot of, I think the word's prevarication. Yes. <laughs> no, just keep inserting new factors into the equation so you keep getting the right answer. Uh, <laughs> and so when we say he is, but he isn't, well, that's not what it says. It was the way I was trained to think. It says, he said, all power and authority has been given me. And it says he's been crowned with glory and honor. So what's left? If, he's, if he has rose and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, then what's left? Well, you would say, oh, but you have to interpret that as, and then you in, enter mm-hmm. that factor, which mm-hmm. then nullifies that, that claim okay. that he's already there. Great, already great question. Great See, objection. It's, it's hard to explain that right. sometimes to other people. Right. So let me respond to that. that that's a great, a great comment. We would never do to the Bible what you and I saw modeled for us and learned to do early on in our Christian experience. We would never do to any other literature what we do to the Bible. Just take a statement, take it completely out of the larger context in which it is stated or written, ignore all other factors that are in the worldview of the author of the statement and the recipients of his statement and so on, abstract it from all of those kinds of things, read into it, absolutize it, don't let anything be historically relative or relative to the occasion about it, just absolutely absolutize it and say, thus saith the word of God. What an absurd thing to do. It seems so natural to do that back in the day because that's the only thing that was ever modeled for us. So the reason we have to take into account something like all power has been given to me and so on and so forth is because it occurs in the context of four Gospels and a whole lot of letters written after them that give us a lot more information about what God's purposes are, what he's doing, what he promised, what he didn't promise, and all that kind of stuff. Did Jesus not know that when he made that statement? Was he not aware of the stuff that Paul's aware of when he made that statement? Is he going, all power and authority has been given me, and then he tries to do something and it doesn't happen, and he goes, oh, I thought all power and authority was given to me. No, he knows his limitations just as much as Paul would or anyone else who's writing the New Testament. So if I want to know what Paul is thinking when he says that, I have to know what he knows. And the way we have of knowing what Jesus knows is to read the entire New Testament and understand the entire New Testament in order to get the background that is underlying 
the claim that he made. Otherwise, we take statements out of context, we turn them into these grand absolute statements, we see reality doesn't match it, and then say, well, by faith I have to believe it anyway. No, by faith you have to believe what he meant, not what you took it to mean. (laughs) If your faith is real, you're going to believe what the real actual Jesus intended when he said all power and authority has been given to me or any other biblical statement. You're going to be receptive to the meaning that the author had in mind. We need to work at that. It's not obvious on the surface when you just take a sentence and declare it. It could mean anything. If you need to satisfy yourself of this, it's well worth doing. Sometimes sit down and just meditate on this. Take a sentence out of the newspaper and imagine 25 different things it could mean if I was allowed to have that statement asserted in 25 different contexts and come to see how radically different that exact same string of words would sound and what it would mean if the context was different. And I don't mean the context, the paragraph. I mean the historical situation, the occasion, the and perhaps in a different culture, and so on. Let me me give you a subtle example of that. I was... Jan's not here. Jan Kiersgaard was a, has been, was a missionary for years in Pakistan and so immersed in Muslim culture. I was telling about a video that I had seen, which is this chilling video of a young woman in northern Syria convicted of adultery being taken out by ISIS to be stoned to death. Online is this video of this where the young woman is pleading with her father, her, you know, her biological father, forgive me. And the father is just, no, no, no. Incredibly, I would argue, not only is that merciless, it's subhuman. You're her father, for goodness sakes. Eventually, the ISIS soldier basically commands him to forgive her, because Allah is merciful, after all, right? Commands him to forgive her, and so he reluctantly, begrudgingly does that. But then she says, come and hold my hand. And he refuses to do that. He draws the line there, and that, that's crossing the line. Now, I was, I was just describing, I mean, just a very chilling video just highlighted for me the diabolical nature of Islam. It talks more about the mercy of God than Christianity could ever hope to in its words, and there's not an ounce of mercy in the way they live their lives. I mean, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but you understand what I'm saying. Sharia law and all that kind of stuff is not founded on mercy, one whit of mercy. It's just not where it's coming from. So I think it's twisted and diabolical. But Jen was telling me that when a Muslim says, forgive me, they don't mean forgive me. They mean, let me get away with it, basically. They would have people that they'd have to fire from their hospital where she worked. And they'd always come back saying, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And what they meant is, don't fire me for this, don't fire me for this, don't fire me for this. They really didn't even have the concept of mercy that, as we see it in Christianity. So that was interesting to me. Without knowing the background to that, knowing the world, I simply was misinterpreting what she was asking. Now, assuming that's the normal cultural, she's operating under the normal cultural assumptions, how would somebody who actually wants mercy say that? Maybe they'd have to say it the same way. So I, don't, I can't read her heart. I don't know what was actually going on with this young woman. But notice the subtlety. Notice how different it is if you understand a different cultural background, what exactly the same string of words means to a Christian in a biblical context 
as opposed to a Muslim in an Islamic context. They all mean the same thing. Well, when a biblical author uses their words, I have to know the background. I have to know the culture. I have to know how they use their words. I have to know the occasion on which it's stated and why it's being stated and with respect to what alternative is it being claimed. If I don't understand all that, I don't understand it at all. And to just sort of dogmatically say, well, he said this. Yeah, he did. And we always have to ask the question. We always have to follow that up. Yes, he said that. And what exactly did he mean by that? Because until we know exactly what he meant by that, we don't even know what we're dealing with. I guess I would have to say that in verse 8, there's a glaring, obvious tip-off to the subtleties of language when he says, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we see not yet all things are subject to him. Exactly. Now, right there, if that's the only verse I had, I said, this is a goofy book. Yeah. This is a goofy way to talk. If you interpret it goofily. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't pay attention to larger context. Exactly. Yeah. Jack, has it been your experience that the Bible speaks about future promises in the past tense because it's based on a promise that God made, so it's as yeah. good as, as done? Yeah, I, I don't know if I can generalize, but in the ones that come readily to mind, in Romans he says, in hope you have been saved, but hope that is seen, he says, is not hope, for why do you hope for what you see? Mm-hmm. But if, yeah, anyway, he's making it, hope is the future, saved, he uses the perfect tense or a past tense, right in the same phrase, in hope you have been saved. Well, why does he talk about the future and then turn around and use the past tense? Because I think the logic of that is because it's as good as done. God promised, God is committed to it, and if God has promised and God is committed to it, it's only a matter of time. This is as good as real because when it comes out in the wash, and history has run its course, this is going to be the outcome. So God even promised. David could look down um, the tunnel of time, or up the, I don't know which direction is up or down, but the future, he could look up into the future and say, in the past tense, you have made me a little lower than me. Exactly. And he's, not, he's speaking. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the way to look at Psalm 8. I think he's talking about himself right now, but the distinction to be made is you have, at least with respect to the promise that you have just given to me, what's the content of that promise? You have made me a little lower than God, a little lower than the Angeloi. Now, what's the reality? Well, that's a different discussion. But in terms of the promise that you have made to me, your promise is that I will be a little lower than God. And that's true right now. That's the promise I've received just now. Anything else in paragraph 6, verses 8 and 9, or before? Okay. Going on then, now it was appropriate for him on account of whom are all things and in the interest of whom are all things. It was appropriate for the one bringing many sons to glory to qualify the forerunner of their deliverance through his sufferings. Okay, he he defines God to start with. He's talking about God here. That's the him that he's talking about. It was appropriate for him who the one on account of whom are all things and in the interest of whom are all things. Why does anything exist? Because God brought it into existence. And for whom did God bring things into existence? For himself, for his purposes, to accomplish his will and to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. So he is the one on account of whom anything that exists, exists. 
and for the purposes of whom anything that exists, exists. So it's just a way of talking about the transcendence of God as the author of all reality, who by virtue of his standing as the author of all reality is the reason why there is anything at all and the one who is served by there being anything at all. And then he alternatively gives another description for God, for the one bringing many sons to glory. Now, I think the two are connected. Why does he bother? Is this just hyperbolic, pious flattery that he calls him the one on account of whom are all things and in the interest of whom are all things? I don't think so. I don't think Paul wastes his breath on empty flattery. I think it's because as the transcendent author of all reality, he has a purpose, he has a script, he has a narrative, he has a story that he's going to create. So when he then turns around and says, for the one bringing many sons to glory, the bringing many sons to glory is right on script. You see what I'm saying? It's connected with the purposes that the transcendent author of all reality, who has the prerogative of doing whatever he wants with reality, what is it that that author decided to do with reality? Well, in the end, he wants to bring many sons to glory. That's what this is all about. That's where this is headed. That's the telos of this story. So the one who had the prerogative of creating the reality the way he wanted to and telling the story he wanted to tell it, it was appropriate for him in bringing many sons to glory to qualify the forerunner of their deliverance through his sufferings. Okay, let's define some terms here. Bringing many sons to glory. Now, what he has in mind here are sons in a different sense, right? He's been underlining the fact that Jesus is the unique son, but now he's talking about bringing many sons to glory. That's sons in a radically different sense, significantly different sense. You and I are sons of God or children of God, if you will. You and I are children of God in the sense that we are heirs. We stand to inherit something from God. What is it that we stand to inherit from God? Well, ultimately, putting in the larger context of the whole New Testament, the promised blessing of Abraham. And God is only going to give that inheritance to his heirs. God, is, God, as our, the father of our being, is only going to give that inheritance to his children. So to be a son of God in that sense is to be someone who stands to inherit that which he plans on passing on. And what is it? In bringing many sons to glory. When we have received that inheritance, when we've received that promised blessing and reward, what is that going to be? Well, he describes it here in a word, glory. We are marvelous creatures. We are amazing creatures. We are the apex of God's creation. There is nothing in all of creation that is as magnificent and as exalted as we are just simply by the fact that we're human beings. But having said that, there's a lot of work to be done on us. We are evil. We are corrupt. We are ungrateful. We bitch and complain all the time. We're selfish, shrunken, small beings and creatures compared to what we could be, compared to how big we could be, how wonderful we could be, how generous and open and not preoccupied with ourselves we could be. If we could be 
like apparently Jesus was, a human being who was there for others and not for himself, who delighted in serving his fellow human beings instead of being served by his fellow human beings. What infinitely more significant and beautiful beings we would be. I think if Paul were writing today, instead of glory, he'd probably use the word beauty. That's our idiom. We're destined for beauty. We're destined to be beautiful beings, beautiful creatures. And instead, we're shriveled up, poor excuses for what a human being should be by comparison to the glory that awaits us. That glory is multifaceted. Our bodies are going to be more glorious. Our physical existence is going to be more glorious. But most importantly of all, our souls are going to be more glorious. We are going to be more truly reflective of God and more in the likeness of God than we are right now. And that's our destiny. That's our inheritance. That's our reward. That's what awaits us if we belong to God as his sons, as his children. And that's what awaits us. So what was God's agenda from the get-go? To bring many sons to glory, to that glory that I was just describing. Now, what he's saying is it was appropriate for the one, for God, whose intention was to bring many sons to glory, to qualify the forerunner of their deliverance through his sufferings. Okay, the forerunner, I've already described that earlier, the one who's literally gone on ahead of us. The deliverance that he's talking about is the deliverance from death. I mean, the thing that hangs over the head of each and every one of us is this cotton-picking thing called death that has all the potential in the world to literally snuff us out, make us not exist any longer, make us not even be a memory any longer. A friend of mine was quoting a passage out of the prophets the other day where he describes the destruction of the ungodly as not only dying but blotting their memory forever. That's the destiny of every single individual human being if we don't live on, is our destiny is to to have the whole of our existence literally erased and gone, gone from all memory. We love to lie to ourselves, and one of the things we lie to ourselves is that we can leave behind a legacy. You know, I'm just going to live my life in this world so that I will be remembered. Have you ever gone to one of those memorials? This is a memorial of so-and-so. Papa, who's he? What is that name? Don't know. Nothing. Don't know nothing about him. Don't care. Do I care? (laughs) It was like thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago. Do I care? That's your legacy? A piece of bronze that's scratched in a way that your name is discernible or the name that you had when you were here is discernible on? That's your legacy? No, death is way more powerful than we give it credit for. And I think in our mythology, we love to think that after I die, I still exist, and I'm sitting there watching all those people remember me. I visualize them remembering me. I see them remembering me. And we imagine what satisfaction is going to come to me in my afterlife as I imagining them remembering well of me and thinking well of me. I think something like Ecclesiastes would say, dude, you ain't going to be remembered at all. They're going to plumb forget who you are. They're not going to care that you even existed. They're not going to care that you were even here. If there is no leaving a legacy that's possible, we must live on in order for my existence to be worth it. 
in order for my existence to be possible. And that's the deliverance that he's talking about here, to be delivered from the negating, canceling, annihilating reality of death. Death will not beat us. We are going to be delivered from death. Well, who is the first to be delivered from death? Jesus. He's our forerunner. Now, I know there were resurrections before Jesus, but those weren't being delivered from death. Those were just some kind of weird, miraculous, bringing them back into mortality again. Kind of a Groundhog's Day retake on life. That was not what happened to Jesus. Jesus, out of mortality, took on immortality at the resurrection. The first human being ever to take on immortality. And that's our destiny if we are his sons, is we too will take on the immortality that Jesus took on in time, in good time, when God is ready to give us our reward. In the meantime, he's gone on ahead. That's why he's the forerunner, forerunner of their deliverance. Now, so what's he saying? It was appropriate for God to bring many sons to glory by qualifying their forerunner in deliverance through his sufferings. He's saying there's something very appropriate about the one who goes first and goes on ahead of us who is going to have Psalm 8 be fulfilled in his life. He's going to be king over the whole created reality. He's going to be king over the eternal kingdom of God. There's something appropriate about him being qualified for that through his sufferings. Now, Paul doesn't spell out why is that appropriate. Well, two things. Notice that he's not saying it was logically necessary. He uses a much weaker word than that. It was fitting. It was somehow fitting, appropriate. I think what he's saying, it's almost more an aesthetic judgment than it is a logical judgment, is doesn't this work? (laughs) Isn't this, doesn't something ring true about this? Doesn't something ring right about this? That the king who's going to rule over us, we will be subjects, subject to him as our king, that king is not going to be a theophany as removed and as remote and as mysterious as a theophany would be. That king is going to be your brother. That king is going to be a fellow human being. And he's going to be a real human being because, and we know he was a real human being because he participated in the essential fabric of human existence itself, suffering. He became qualified to be your king, and he qualified you, or at least he was back up in that. He made possible you entering into glory, entering into life through the very, very human reality of undergoing suffering. So if there's any question but what he's one of us, look at what he had to experience. Isn't that the stuff that all of us are complaining about? Isn't that the stuff that we want to be delivered from? He was qualified to be the one who would reign over the kingdom with us as his subjects by undergoing the same kind of suffering that we are required to undergo. And what Paul is saying is there's something symmetrical about that. There's something appropriate about that. There's something fitting about that. Could God have done it another way? Yeah. He could have appointed an angelos to be king of kings in the eternal kingdom of God. But it would have been a really different picture would have been a really different reality. Why should I be subject to the theophany? Well, he's God. 
I'm going to say more than that about Jesus. Yes, he's God, but he's the one who paid for me with his life. He's the one who delivered me from destruction and complete annihilation because he was willing to go to his death. I like owe him big time. I wouldn't even be here if it weren't for him. Do I want to be subject to him? You bet I want to be subject to him. I would love to be subject to him. In the gratitude that surely we will feel at that time, there will be no qualms at all about him being king and me being subject. Even though, no better than I am. You see what I mean? In context, context, right? <laughs> Even though what I mean by that is he's just one more human being like we're human beings. He's not filled with super juice, and that's why he gets to be king. He's just like us, but he is our soter. He's our rescuer. He's the one who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, a, a death of torture. He was obedient to the point of allowing himself to be tortured so that I would not die and that I could have a reality beyond the grave. So, yeah, I'll be subject to him. Okay. For then both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one humanity. And I think what he has in mind there, okay, first of all, those who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Paul is using sanctified in a slightly different way here than he normally does in his letters. It's clearly related. It's the same basic idea, but he doesn't usually use it in this context. The one who sanctifies here is Jesus. He's talking about Jesus being the one who sanctifies. Typically, it's God who sanctifies. But here he's describing Jesus as the one who sanctifies. In what sense? He's the one who, through his action, sets aside a group of people, a set of people who are going to survive death or are going to be raised from the dead and who are going on to an existence after your death. That's this destiny that we've been set apart for, a glorious destiny by divine appointment. And so who's the one who determined who belongs to that group and who doesn't? Ultimately, Jesus. So Jesus is the one who sets apart you as an individual and makes you a part of that group that's going to have that destiny. Paul captures that by saying the one who sanctifies. Sanctify literally meaning setting apart for a sacred role, sacred purpose of some kind. So both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, you and me, are all from one humanity. I've already talked about this. I think the unity that he's looking at is because... We all suffer, so the one who sanctifies us, God found it appropriate that he suffer as well in the process of sanctifying us, that he suffer to do that in order that we might be all on the same, a part of the same humanity, suffering humanity. Not different levels, not different classes, not different kinds of humanity, but he would literally completely join us in suffering humanity and be one of us, be our brother. For this reason, he says, he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. There he quotes the psalm that we looked at a few weeks ago, Psalm 22, the one that starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that psalm, it's David as the Messiah, 
being assailed because he's the Messiah. The enemies of God are coming to destroy him as the Messiah. And he poetically describes the danger that he's in. But then as the psalm goes on, he prays for deliverance and he anticipates deliverance and says, after God has delivered him, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will sing your praise for the deliverance that you have given to me. Well, that's in effect what Jesus is doing for us today. If we could hear him, he's calling out from the right hand of the throne of God, praise be to God who did not leave me in the grave. Praise be to God who rewarded me with the reward he had promised me. Death did not defeat me. Though I died, death did not defeat me. I am now alive and in my reward. He's saying that to us, his brothers, because we are the ones that need to know what's true of him will also be true of us. He will deliver us just as he delivered the Messiah. Okay, the next section is too long to get into. We have five minutes for any questions that you might have. I'll pick up the very end of this next Sunday. Regarding what you were saying about the power of death means that those who are not a part of the age to come have no legacy in the age to come after death. Again, this is just a speculation on my part, but what you were discussing with your friend in reverse, would that mean that potentially unpleasant memories of those who are destined for the kingdom? What would that mean that such memories wouldn't carry over? Let me make sure I'm getting the question right. So is the converse of that that those of us who do go to the eternal kingdom of God will have unpleasant or evil memories erased so yes. they're no longer a part? Yeah, I'm kind of jumping a few steps. Right. But yeah. The only thing that we know to that effect is the, the kind of imagery in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear, I think is the way he puts it. Now, some people interpret it along the lines that we will not remember the things in our life that would be a source of regret or something like that. Certainly that's possible. I suppose that's possible. I'm more inclined. That doesn't sound like something that is part of the purposes of God, though. I rather think that we will so understand God and what he's done that I will no longer experience sorrow at what, in fact, ultimately brought joy. Does a mother forget the labor pains? You'll have, I, I don't... <laughs> Your mothers will have to answer this. Do they forget the labor pains, or is the joy of having a new child just put it all in a different perspective? So I, I'm inclined to think that it's rather that we everything gets made new by the newness of the glory, of the glorious reward that's given to us, so that no matter how bad it was, we now understand what it led to, and that gives us joy rather than sorrow. I'd be more inclined to think that. Yes, yeah, so in other words, memories would be put in a new perspective. Yeah, I think so. An interesting thing happened to me. I, I committed an act so evil at one point in my life that I literally made myself forget it, forget that I had done it. And it wasn't until decades later when I had a theology that now put me in a position where I could handle it. I now had a perspective that would allow me to understand what it was that I had done. And 
the memories came flooding back of what I had done at that point. And it killed me that I had been that horrible on the one hand. On the other hand, I was ready for it now because I had been studying my Bible and I had understood the gospel and I had understood God's purposes in a way that equipped me now to absorb the reality of my own depravity. But before that, I think God had deemed me not ready yet. And so this memory that I had suppressed just stayed suppressed until I was ready. But all that's to say, I think in eternity, we'll be ready for anything. We will be equipped, we will be fortified with wisdom and knowledge and understanding that the rawest truth about ourselves will be something that we can absorb and take in and acknowledge as true, and yet it not be ultimately a sorrowful reality, but actually a joyous, glorious reality. Okay? Now your imaginations are going to go wild. I'll be glad to tell that story anytime you want. It's, you may laugh at me, but... Looking at the two concepts that I've had in my life about the person of Jesus and still trying to be, you know, wrap my mind around them, it always seemed to me the way I had been taught, which was that he was holy God and holy man. Mm-hmm. This somehow magic combination, what, I, what you call the God juice that was in him. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that that was a very logical explanation at one time for how he lived a life of such obedience and goodness and caring about others when I couldn't do it for love nor money. Mm-hmm. And I looked around, I didn't see anybody else that I could spot who was doing it. And my explanation for, well, how he did it was he had this godness inside him which made him different than the rest of us so he was able to do it. Right. Now, if you take that away, if your theology begins to change and you say he was brought into this world by the Father, as all of us are, but for a special purpose to ultimately be his son. Would it be fair to say that he accomplished what he did? Because you've said at times, he's a man just like us. But I still have to explain to myself, how did he do those things when none of the rest of us can even come close? I mean, it isn't even a close second anywhere. (laughs) So I look at it and I'm wondering if you would agree that we have to then go to the concept of God, the author of all things. And God authored his life, even though he was a human, just like I am, he authored him to be that obedient being. Exactly. And he never did me, and he didn't you, and nobody else. Exactly. So he still, though he was human, just like I am, he was a different sort of human, because God chose to write his story differently than he did mine. Right. As Paul puts it, He created him to be the last Adam, a whole new prototype of a whole new way of being an ordinary human being, now namely a sinless human being. But remember, when we start thinking that it's the God juice in Jesus that allowed him to be sinless, then what's going to allow me to be sinless when I'm in glory? Am I God? Am I filled with God juice? You have to drink the Kool-Aid with the God juice. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you see the problem? If God is going to be able to do it in the future, make a human being, namely me, who's sinless, why couldn't he have done it back then? Got to let you go. Thanks.